Ascot pointed to the open trunk of G's car. Caroline hurried back from the turnout's entrance with the baby. Rachel took Gordievsky's mud cake, malodorous and possibly radioactive shoes, tied them in a plastic bag, and threw them under the front seat of the car. Gordievsky climbed into the open trunk of the Sierra and lay down. G handed him water, the medical pack, and the empty bottle and indicated by hand signals that he should undress in the trunk. The aluminum space blanket was laid on top of him. The women bundled the picnic into the back seats. G gently closed the trunk and Gordievsky disappeared into darkness. With Ascot in the lead, the two cars rejoined the main road and accelerated. The entire pickup had taken 80 seconds. At kilometer post 852, the next GIA observation post loomed into view, and with it a memorable tableau. The mustard-colored Zaguli and the two police cars were parked, doors open on the side of the road. A KGB man in plain clothes was in earnest conversation with five militiamen. They all turned swiftly to look at us as we appeared and stared open-mouthed as the two British cars drove by, their faces registering a mixture of confusion and relief. The driver ran back to his car as soon as we were past, wrote Ascot. He had such a puzzled and incredulous look on his face that I expected to be stopped and at least questioned about our movements. But surveillance cars slotted in behind just as before. Had they radioed ahead to the border, warning the guards to look out for a party of foreign diplomats? Did they file a report admitting that they had lost the British diplomats for several minutes? Or did they, in more traditional Soviet fashion, assume that the foreigners had merely stopped off the road to relieve themselves, disguise the fact that several minutes were unaccounted for, and say nothing at all? It is impossible to know the answer to this question, but it's easy to guess it. From the trunk, Rachel and Arthur G. could hear the muted grunts and bumps as Gordievsky struggled to remove his clothes in the constricted space. Then a distinctive gush, and he decanted his lunchtime beers. Rachel turned up the music, Dr. Hook's Greatest Hits, a compilation of the American rock band's records that included only 16, When You're in Love with a Beautiful Woman, and Sylvia's Mother. The style of Dr. Hook's music is often described as easy listening. Gordievsky did not find it easy. Even crammed into the boiling trunk of the car, fleeing for his life, he found time to be irritated by this lowbrow schmaltzy pop. It was horrible, horrible music. I hated it. But it was not the noise their secret passenger was making that most worried Rachel. It was the smell, a mixture of sweat, cheap soap, tobacco, and beer rising from the rear of the car. It wasn't unpleasant exactly, but it was most distinctive and quite strong. It was the smell of Russia. It's not something you would have found in an English car. The sniffer dogs would surely register that something in the back of the car smelled quite different from the passengers in the front. By a process of contortion, Gordievsky managed to remove his shirt and trousers. The exertion left him clutching for breath. The heat was already intense, and the air inside the trunk seemed to thicken with each gulp. He swallowed a sedative pill. Gordievsky imagined the scene that would take place if the border guards found him. The British would feign surprise and claim that the fugitive had been planted as a provocation. They would all be hauled off. He would be taken to the Lubyanka, forced to confess and then killed. This is Fallen Walls, Open Curtains. In the USA, in the USA.
That was an excerpt from The Spy and the Traitor, a 2018 book by Ben McIntyre that tells the true story of Oleg Gordievsky and how he spied on his homeland, the Soviet Union, for British intelligence throughout the 1970s and 1980s. It is also part of a larger story of Aldrich Ames, who sold secrets to the Soviet Union and is one of the more notorious traitors in U.S. history. I'm Tom Panneries, and this real-life espionage will be the focus of my first half of this episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit and the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. In the second half of the show, I'm going to talk about films from the late 1980s that look to show a slightly more friendly version of the Soviet Union, or at least a version that was moving toward peace. A couple of the Russians are kind of our friends now movies, if you will. These include 1987's Ruskies and 1990's The Hunt for Red October. But first, I'm going to look at what was happening in the Cold War during the three months of September, October, and November of 1991. On September 4th, Sverdlovsk name is restored to its pre-communist era, era name of Yekaterinburg. Two days later, Leningrad is renamed St. Petersburg. On September 5th, the Congress of People's Deputies of the Soviet Union self-dissolves. It's replaced by the Supreme Soviet of the Soviet Union, the State Council of the Soviet Union. To remind you that by the end of this year, the Soviet Union will cease to exist. So this is the unraveling of both the bureaucracy and the political body that will eventually be replaced uh, by the various independent states that make up the Commonwealth of Independent States and then Russia, with Russia essentially at the head. On September 8th, when we're getting into the dissolution of Yugoslavia, the Republic of Macedonia becomes independent, beginning a name dispute with Greece. And I believe that um, that is one of the reasons that for years the country was named the former Yugoslav Republic of Macedonia on official maps. On September 11th, 1991, the Soviet Union announces plans to withdraw military and economic aid to Cuba. September 17th, North Korea, South Korea, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, the Marshall Islands, and Micronesia join the United Nations. Armenia will declare its independence from the Soviet Union on September 21st. A little over a month later, on October 27th, Turkmenistan will declare its independence. On September 27th, also... George H.W. Bush, the then President of the United States, announced unilateral reductions in short-range nuclear weapons. He also called off 24-hour alerts for long-range bombers. The Soviet Union would respond to similar unilateral reductions on October 5th, marking a very huge thaw in the way that things were compared to the beginning of the 1980s, which we looked at a couple of episodes ago, where we were very sure that we were going to be involved in a nuclear war with the Soviet Union. On October 1st, forces of the Yugoslav People's Army surround Dubrovnik, beginning the siege of Dubrovnik, which will last until May 31st of 1992. President Gorbachev of the USSR uh, condemns anti-Semitism in the Soviet Union on October 6th, and this is a statement that's read on the 50th anniversary of the Babi Yar massacres, 
which saw the death of 35,000 Jews in the Ukraine during World War II. If you would like a really good look at the Ukraine in World War II, I can not recommend this graphic novel enough. Katusha, Girl Soldier of the Great Patriotic War by Wayne Van Zant. It's available on, on Amazon and other places, and it's the story of a young woman who um, is survives the, not only the Nazi occupation of the Ukraine, but joins the Red Army and becomes a tank driver. And it is essentially the war uh, in her eyes, and the Bobby Yar Massacre is part of the, the story. So you get a really good history lesson, plus a very, very compelling story. So Katusha, Girl Soldier of the Great Patriotic War by Wayne Van Zant, you really should check it out. Moving on, um, back into Yugoslavia, on October 7th, the Yugoslav Air Force bombs the office of Croatian President Franjo Tudman, causing the Croatian parliament to cut all remaining ties with Yugoslavia the next day. And on October 11th, the KGB officially begins its drawdown and is replaced, actually, with the SVR. Uh, the KGB will officially end operations on November 6th. I believe it's eventually, it goes back to its old name of the NKVD, but I'm not entirely sure about that. October 12th, Askar Akiev is confirmed as the first president of Kyrgyzstan in an uncontested poll. Uh, there's a Bulgarian parliamentary election on October 13th, but where the Union of Democratic Forces defeats the Bulgarian Socialist Party, and there are therefore no remaining communist governments in Eastern Europe. While this is not related to Europe, and it's actually a little more related to my former podcast, In Country, I would like to note that on October 23rd in Paris, uh, the Vietnam-backed government of Cambodia signed an agreement with the Khmer Rouge to end the civil war within that country. They bring the Khmer Rouge into power despite its role in the Cambodian genocide. This ends the Cambodian-Vietnamese war. It results in the creation of the UN Transitional Authority in Cambodia. And uh, Vietnam's history after the end of the war, so after the end of the Vietnam, what we know as the Vietnam War, in 1975, is one of very tumultuous warfare um, and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot more young men in their country dying at a war with China and you have this war with Cambodia. Uh, Cambodia's history as well is is very fraught with, you have, you know, um, the Khmer Rouge led by Pol Pot and things. So it's it's a, it's another another topic that's beyond the scope of this podcast. And I covered a little bit of it, um, especially the Cambodian part here and there on uh, In Country, the podcast I did about Marvel's comics, The Nom, which is over on the Two True Freaks site. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about that, on October 27th, the first free parliamentary elections in Poland are held since 1928. Remember, Lech Wałęsa will become the president of Poland, the first president of Poland, after its stitching of Soviet control. Apartheid. This is something in South Africa. Again, not applying to Europe, but when you think about this particular era of the Cold War, apartheid is is part of it in, in a big way. And, and the African National Congress leads a general strike on November 4th and 5th, demanding representation in the government and an end to the value-added tax. And as we see the wall come down, as we see communism end in Europe, we will see apartheid end in South Africa. 
as well. Nelson Mandela will be freed, and that particular set of laws will be completely struck down eventually. On November uh, 5th, as I mentioned, just getting back into Vietnam, China-Vietnam restored diplomatic relations after a 13-year rift. That's after the 1979 war between the two countries. On November 6th, the CPSU and its republic-level division, the Communist Party of the Russian SFSR, are banned in that Russian uh, party by presidential decree. So we are we are weeding out the hardline communists, and we are getting closer and closer to the end of the Soviet Union. A couple weeks later, on November 18th, the forces of the Yugoslav People's Army and the Serb paramilitaries take the Croatian town of Vukovar, after the 87-day Battle of Vukovar, they killed more than 260 Croatian prisoners of war. And on the same day, in Azerbaijan, an Azerbaijani Mil Mi-8 helicopter carrying a 19-member peacekeeping team is shot down by Armenian military forces in Kuryavend district in Azerbaijan. On November 23rd, members of the Communist Party Great Britain voted to dissolve the party and found the think tank the Democratic Left. On November 26th, the National Assembly of Azerbaijan abolishes the autonomous status of the Nagorno-Karabakh Autonomous Oblast and names several cities to their Azeri names. And finally, on November 27th, the UN Security Council unanimously adopts a resolution opening the way to establish the to the establishment of peacekeeping operations in Yugoslavia. And like I said, the end of Yugoslavia and the turmoil that existed after that is something that I covered a few episodes ago if you want to go back and listen to it again. I'll have more next month, which will be the final episode, of course, on the official dissolution of, Soviet, of the Soviet Union. Um, there will only be a month worth of events, but the big one will be the fact that the f Soviet flag is finally lowered and the Russian flag is raised over Red Square. And we have the pulling out of various uh, countries, the establishment of various new countries, and we have some turmoil in some of the former Soviet republics that does not go as peacefully, or that meaning that the transition does not go as peacefully as, say, it didn't like, you know, the Baltics and, and things like that. So we'll take a look at that next time. But right now, I, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the spies. <laughs> so at the beginning of the show, you heard me read from Ben McIntyre's book, The Spy and the Traitor. And during this segment, you also heard me talk about how the KGB officially ended on November 6th. It was, at least in Russia, it was replaced by the SVR and, and across the um, across its own intelligence community. Now, while this didn't end Russian intelligence operations, it was an important event in the Cold War because it meant that one of the most important apparatuses of the conflict was gone. And a major part of what we associate with the Cold War was officially over. I talked about spies and spying twice in this miniseries already. When I looked at John Le Carre's novel, The Spy Who Came In From the Cold, in the first episode, as well as James Bond about halfway through. And I thought as I get closer to the end, I mean, this is the penultimate episode of the show here, I would take some time to look at actual spying as opposed to the fictional ones. And I'll do it through the lens of this book. The Spy and the Traitor, as I said earlier, is about Oleg Gordievsky, a KGB agent who not only defected to the West, but actively spied for British intelligence. 
His story intersects with that of Aldrich Ames, um, or Rick Ames, who is one of the most infamous traitors of the United States. Gordievsky was one of the many spies that Ames sold out while working for the KGB. And he came to mind, Ames came to mind as I was doing the research for the episode, because while I've focused on revolutions and regime change, the effects that the end of the Cold War had on our defense and intelligence communities are just as important. At the end of the Second World War, the United States emerged with a massive military force and a significant amount of power in the world, which it then continued to build. Concurrently, the United States formally established the CIA, an agency that is the front for a larger intelligence community, during the war had been known as the OSS. Both our defense and intelligence went through a tough adjustment in the early 1990s, especially the defense industry, which was plagued by mergers, layoffs, and closures. The CIA had significant problems as well, especially when it misread a number of events at the tail end of the Cold War, including reports in the Soviet economy, as well as being caught completely off guard by the fall of the Berlin Wall. By 1991, the agency was under increased scrutiny and it faced budget cuts that led to layoffs and closures of 20 of its stations internationally. This is a far cry from the image that we have of the CIA throughout the Cold War, with this network of spies fighting a silent espionage war against the KGB. Of course, that reputation was helped by spy novels and movies as were the operations of British intelligence, whose allyship with the United States was very much in the realm of a friendly competition. After the Cold War ended, their priorities shifted to anti-proliferation and counterterrorism. Of course, both agencies' roles have changed over the past two decades, especially after 9-11. But I wanted to highlight the story of Gordievsky and Ings in this part because the story plays out like a spy novel, except it's very much true. When you look at the apparatus of all the major players in the Cold War spying game, the CIA, MI6, the KGB, you have an elaborate network of people who were deeply embedded in their enemy's culture as well as an enormous bureaucracy that oversaw their operations and made decisions. It was because of this bureaucracy that people like Gordievsky and Ames could slip through and work for the other side. Of course, the circumstances through which they betrayed their countries were much different for each. Oleg Gordievsky was a KGB legacy, so to speak. He was the son and brother of dedicated loyal officers and who worked his way to a high enough position that he was both stationed internationally and had access to secrets, especially rosters of KGB agents that were in the field. He'd grown disillusioned with the agency during his years of service, especially after the way the Soviet army crushed the resistance of the Prague Spring of 1968. What got him motivated was the fact that he had an affinity for more Western way of life, including literature and popular culture. Gordievsky was stationed in Denmark, so he had access to everything from the works of Shakespeare to pornography. In fact, a funny anecdote in McIntyre's book is one about Gordievsky seeing gay porn in a shop in Copenhagen and buying it because he was just amazed that gay porn existed. And the KGB saw that and thought he was homosexual, and they started looking into him because of that. Now, obviously, there's nothing wrong with homosexuality, but I don't think it's going to come as a shock to anybody listening that the KGB was hugely restrictive, both in terms of heterosexual relationships and completely forbid homosexuality among its ranks. 
So if you are suspected of having a same-sex partner encounter or even an interest, then you were put under investigation and there was a high possibility that you could lose your job. Now, losing your job could mean transfer to another position that was not as good. So like you get demoted and kind of put out to pasture until you left on your own, or you were flat out dismissed. And this was, I mean, this was even the case, like I said, they had restrictions on heterosexual relationships. You know, you could not get divorced. Um, McIntyre details how Gordievsky did get divorced. He was married when he was in Copenhagen and he started working at the KGB and had an affair with the secretary for the World Health Organization. And that affair stalled his career, especially after he divorced his first wife and married that secretary. And now even though by all accounts, his first marriage was very unhappy. It kind of reminds me of the memories that Winston has of his wife in 1984. She was loyal to the party and there was no love. In fact, sex between them was considered doing their duty to Big Brother. And I guess on some level, that's what Orwell was trying to show. Soviet totalitarianism was based on allegiance to the state and worship of the leader. But back into the real world and back into the 1970s, and this is when Gordievsky's disillusionment really started to come on. And it came on slowly, but he began that relationship with British intelligence in the 70s. And by the mid-80s, he was spying for them full on until he was discovered and MI6 had to activate a detailed and risky extraction plan. And by that point, he'd been not only stationed in Copenhagen, but he'd been sent to London. And he did a lot of spying for them in London, sussing out who was working for the KGB in England. But then, as they kind of got on to him about what was going on, he got transferred back to Moscow as he was under that suspicion. And his escape was because he was one of the many agents, you know, and, and he had to have this escape plan put in. And all this happened because Rick Ames sold him out. Now, Ames's story is one that is definitely not as noble as being a turncoat for idealism. And I'm not saying that just because he went to the wrong side, but because he did it for money. Ames had remarried in the early 1980s for, to a woman who came from wealth and was used to that sort of lifestyle. Rick Ames was a mid-level CIA employee. He worked for the federal government. He wasn't making a ton of money. And what happened was that he found himself deeper and deeper and deeper in debt because he wanted to please his wife. So what did he do to fix this? Well, he began selling secrets. And it worked incredibly well. But the problem is that because he kept needing more money and because then he started flaunting that, it led to his downfall but in the meantime, he also got a number of people killed. I may have told this story earlier in the series, but my first job out of college was a, as a copy editor in what was then called the National Imagery Mapping Agency, or NEMA, which was a joint agency between DOD and the CIA. And I got hired through the CIA. So before I went to work in the Washington Navy Yard, and this is 1999, uh, the fall of 1999. So the Washington Navy Yard was not as half as nice looking as it is now. The first two weeks of my employment was not in the Navy Yard. It was at Langley. And I, because I had to do what they used to call CIA 101. Now, during that training, uh, you know, it was a, there was a lot of your typical onboarding for even a company, you know, 
uh, insurance, uh, company policy, you know, benefits going down, like, you know, those sorts of things. But during that training, we also had some guest speakers and all of them knew or still had memories of Rick Ames. And whenever they talked about him, because he would come up in conversation and he would come up in their lectures, they did so with this tone that was this combination of a heavy heart and utter disgust. Now, this being 1999, and Ames had only been arrested five years prior, 1994, but I'm sure that for some people who are with, still with the CIA, and even those people who I'm pretty sure have retired by now, it probably still hurts especially because of the way that Ames so successfully played the long game against the CIA. Now, Gordievsky, who was spying for the British, played the long game against the KGB. And I, I think even at both levels, uh, with both men, I found that interesting. And I think that's what I find fascinating about true spy stories. You know, our fictional ones, especially ones that are movies, they fit within a time frame, right? You know, you got two hours to two, maybe sometimes two and a half or three, but usually two hours to tell your story. So when everything happens, you know, it's a mission. You go in and you do it and, and everything seems to be on such a tight time frame. But unless it's like a series of a, of a TV series or something, you're not going to get the true flavor of a spy's life in a two-hour movie. And even in a series, you might not get it. I'm not sure Alias was exactly um, true to life, no matter how hot Jennifer Garner looked. But anyway, the thing I'm trying to say is there's a lot of everyday work uh, when you're deep undercover and you have a, essentially have to work your day job all the while sneaking documents, making contacts, avoiding suspicion, and all the things that we associate with spying. It is fascinating, but it's way more of a slow burn. And uh, Gordievsky, in fact, went dormant at one point. Uh, his position changed. He had to work on building up his, after his divorce. He had to work on building up standing in the KGB. So the British really didn't hear from him very much, something they were kind of used to here and there. You know, these things, like I said, you, you play the long game, you're going to have lulls and you're going to have periods of activity. And they kept their plans on file for when they needed him again. And they kept his escape plan ready. Now, McIntyre goes into the detail about how MI6 smuggled Gordievsky out of the Soviet Union through Finland and into Norway in the trunk of a car. Um, I read the first part of that chapter at the top of the show. And in Norway, he ultimately defected to the United Kingdom because Finland had this agreement with the Soviet Union. And if you were trying to smuggle somebody across the border and you got caught inside of Finland, uh, they had no problem turning you back over to the Russians. The story of the escape, it's tense. It's like a tense couple of chapters of the book, and it makes for a great movie or TV storyline. British intelligence nicknamed Gordievsky Pimlico, and he had, they had a whole operation. It involved covert signals with shopping bags and candy bars, a trip to a highway turnout or rest area on the way to Finland. Um, that's where they put Gordievsky in the trunk of the car, as you heard. And they pull the whole thing off. That's what's amazing. Uh, it's huge. It's huge. A huge PR coup for the for MI6 because Gordievsky would go on to be a major provider of intelligence and information about the inner workings of Soviet intelligence. There's a whole point where they've got the plan going already, but they actually have to get the prime minister to, to sign off. So they find like Maggie Thatcher at like a 
a like summer home or something while she's supposed to be on vacation and bug her and sign her off. And it, it's it really is very, or at least as as this is um, told in the book, it is very cinematic and it's a great great story. Now uh, Ames's downfall in 1994 was just as publicized, although there was not necessarily a good day for the United States and its intelligence community. He operated way under the radar for years, and it was only when he'd gotten too lavish in his lifestyle that people in the agency really did get suspicious. The story of his arrest also reads like a scene from a cop show, with the FBI swarming his house and him screaming, You got the wrong man! (laughs) Now, I'm being a little self-indulgent with this this uh, this segment. It's like I'm basically telling you I read this really read this really cool book about spies and I wanted to tell you all about it. But honestly, like I picked this up and I wanted to share it because these individual stories really make history and studying history come alive, which is corny, but it's true. Um, I came across McIntyre's book while researching Ames, and I thought it'd be great to be a bookend to the spy who came in from the cold, which was in episode one. Just like, you know, the next episode where I'm looking at the formal end of the USSR, it's going to be a great bookend to the fall of the Berlin Wall in episode one. The Spy and the Traitor, like I said earlier, was published in 2018, so it's still in print. It's still available if you're interested in checking it out, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes for you. Now, the second half of this episode is going to be about how the Russians eventually became our friends. Well, at least in the sense that we started to get along a little bit better in popular culture. We used to get, we got more popular culture about the humanity of the citizens of the Soviet Union and even some of its military people, which is a far cry from the anti-communist propaganda of the 1950s that I covered way back in the beginning of this miniseries. And that's where the introduction to music to the episode acts as a nice bridge. It's called Ordinary People, and it's by the Canadian new wave band The Box. The message contained within the song, which incorporates the national anthems of both the United States and Soviet Union, is that both the people of Russia and the people of the United States are, well, they're people. I know, it's a simple concept. But it was something that the group's lead singer, Jean-Marc Pisapia, wanted to get across when he wrote it in the early 1980s, although it wasn't released until 1987. The Korean 007 airliner had just been shot down over Siberia, he said in an interview once. The Berlin Wall had yet to come down, then U.S. President Ronald Reagan was calling Russia the evil empire. Things were pretty tense at that time. But all that song was saying was, look, we are ordinary people, we don't care about your politics, we just want to live in peace. So how did Hollywood get this idea of us wanting to live in peace across? We'll stick around and find out. People think like you and me, It's Fade Out, hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests. Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. 
most brilliant commander in the Soviet Navy. Remy has trained most of their officer corps. He's nearly a legend in the submarine community. The most deadly submarine ever built. This thing could park a couple of hundred warheads off Washington. Nobody'd know a thing about it until it was all over. And once more, we play our dangerous game with our old adversaries, the American Navy. His plan is a mystery. A man with your responsibilities reading about the end of the world. Apparently, he has suffered a kind of nervous breakdown in which he announced his intention to fly his missiles on the United States. He wants to help you hunt him down, kill him. Open the outer doors, firing point procedures. We sail into history. I'm going to blow him right to Mars. Radius might be trying to defect. You're just an analyst. What can you possibly know what goes on in this mine? I'll give you three days to prove your theory correct. I am not field personnel. I am only an analyst. You're perfect. I'm expendable. He's defecting. You're willing to bet your life on that? From the best-selling novel by Tom Clancy. From the director. My orders are specific. Battle stations. Sean Connery, Alec Baldwin, James Earl Jones, Scott Glenn, Sam Neill. The Hunt for Red October. So as the Cold War began to wind down, Hollywood started turning its attention away from nuclear holocaust flicks and pro-USA propaganda about teens and boxers winning the war for us with Mikhail Gorbachev projecting a slightly more welcoming USSR and more and more American entertainment and businesses making their appearance in Moscow, the tone of action movies began to change as well. Russians were no longer a monolithic evil opponent, and more television episodes and movies had storylines about some sort of cultural exchange that led to an understanding that deep down we're all people. On television, there was an episode in, this, in season one of 21 Jump Street where Judy Hoffs has to play babysitter to a Polish exchange student who goes all in on capitalistic excess, just like American teenagers. I remember an episode of the very short-lived ABC Top Gun-esque show Super Carrier where the American protagonists teamed up with Russians for some sort of training exercise or something. There's like two other people who are listening to this who remember Super Carrier. Probably, if I could track it down, worth a look at Pop Culture Affidavit. And there was also the uh, Howard Hessman sitcom Head of the Class. Uh, that had two stories involving the academic team from the high school facing off against the Russian academic team with the second one of those taking place in Moscow. In fact, Head of the Class was the first American television show ever to film in Moscow. Uh, the ABC sitcom ends with the American team winning the match, of course, but the Russians aren't sore losers and everyone attends a concert together in the end. I remember the final clue being Leica and the other dog because Dennis Blunden played by Dan Schneider, couldn't remember the name of the other dog, which I can't remember either. And then it's like Latya or something. And then um, Arvid was late for the match and Arvid comes running down the aisle of the match and he sees Arvid and he remembers the name of the dog. He shouts at the answer and they win. 
And I'm not kidding when I say I remember that completely from memory because I have not seen that episode of Head of the Class, which I probably taped, by the way, since it first aired in the late 1980s. So let's get back into the film. Let's go with films, though. So you've got a, a couple of other uh, historic films and other things here, especially uh, when it comes to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Red Heat. This was a buddy cop movie starring Arnold Schwarzenegger and Jim Belushi. It was the first American film ever given permission to shoot in Red Square. Uh, I owned this on VHS back in the day. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's probably still at my parents' house. I watched it enough times that I probably could do a review off the top of my head, but while it's notable for its location shooting, it really is just nothing more than a 48 hours lethal weapon pastiche with Arnie playing Ivan Danko a brick wall of a Soviet police officer who is sent to uh, Chicago and partnered with Belushi's schlubby Art Ridzik to catch a drug pin who's operating in Chicago. They are mismatched partners who don't get along, but do, you know, the drill. It is entertaining though. I'd watch it if you can find it. What I want to look at are two movies about Soviet military officers making their way to the United States. One will be 1987's Ruskies, and the other will be 1990's The Hunt for Red October. Now, I'm going to start with The Hunt for Red October, even though it came out later, because the book upon which it is based debuted in 1984, and it takes place in 1984, according to the beginning of the movie, and it's also in line with a lot of the movies I've been talking about, you know, action flicks and military thrillers. Now, The Hunt for Red October was directed by John McTiernan. He had just prior to this film helmed Predator and Die Hard, the latter being a game changer in the action genre. Tiernan's career, I, I was like, what has this guy done lately? Because he was when he was on, he was really on as an action director. But then he also had bombs like um, Last Action Hero. It did not end well. He... Uh, he served time for threatening somebody over something on the movie version, the, the remake version of Rollerball that he directed. And from what I gather, he is persona non grata in Hollywood. So there you go. But let's get back to when his uh, when he was on his game because we have the hunt for Red October. And Red October premiered on March 2nd of 1990. It was a box office smash. It grossed $122 million domestically. It held the number one position at the box office during its first three weeks of release. It stayed in the top five throughout April of 1990. And overall, it was the fifth highest grossing movie of 1990. It was beat out by, from one through four, Ghost, Pretty Woman, Home Alone, and, and I'm going to pause there just to note that you have a romance, a supernatural romance movie, a rom-com, and a kids movie being the th biggest box office draws of 1990. You know, we're so used to the blockbuster thing of the, the big action movie, the big franchise movie, and things like that. It's just, I, I always point, I always find it amazing that these were, these were not only so huge, I mean, rom-coms and things can be huge, but just huge enough to top the box office. Uh, number four, by the way, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I remember that movie being a big deal. I to uh, when I looked this up, I was still surprised it made that much money to be outgrossing The Hunt for Red October and a number of other movies. It was number four for the year. 
Hunt for Red October, of course, like I said, was fifth. It also won an Oscar for Best Sound Effects Editing. It was nominated for Best Film Editing and Best Sound. The only other thing I can think to say about its release and all this uh, box office info is that when it came out on video, the VHS tape was red, at least in its first pressing. Paramount did the same thing for Ghost. They made that white. This has nothing to do with the Cold War. I just always love that fact because I remember I didn't see it in the theater. I saw it on VHS and I remember renting it from the video store. The tape was red. Uh, we did own it at one point too. We owned Ghost as well. Um, but the tapes were just black by the time we got around to owning them. Anyway, so the film is based on that Tom Clancy novel from 1984. This is the book that launched his career. Clancy, by the way, was an alum of Loyola College in Maryland, in Baltimore. That's where I went to college. Never read the novel myself. I started it years ago when I was in high school after I'd read the, watched the movie enough times. And I was like, this is like just like the movie. So I stopped reading it. Maybe one day I'll go back and read it. Um, I've actually never read any of his novels. I've seen three of the movies. I've seen Patriot Games and The Sum of All Fears as well. But um, maybe I should go back and read a couple of the earlier novels. I've heard they're really, really good. Anyway, uh, the film stars Alec Baldwin as Jack Ryan. This is the role that launched his career. Uh, he would not return for the future ones because he held out for more money and the producers ended up getting Harrison Ford, who they actually originally wanted for this role, but Ford, had, Ford was unavailable or turned it down or something, so these things go. But up until this point, Baldwin had just been a supporting cast member in a few comedies. He was in She's Having a Baby, Beetlejuice, and Married to the Mob, most notably. Playing his adversary of sorts, Soviet submarine commander Marco Ramius is Sean Connery, who is coming off an Oscar win for The Untouchables and the box office success of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. The cast also includes a number of recognizable faces, and hey, it's that, guys, such as Sam Neill, Tim Curry, Scott Glenn, James Earl Jones, Courtney Vance, Stellan Sosgard, Jeffrey Jones, Mr. Rooney from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Gates McFadden, Dr. Crusher, and Joss Ackland, who... I first saw as the villain in Lethal Weapon 2. He was the like old hockey store equipment guy slash mentor slash Obi-Wan in uh, The Mighty Ducks. Yeah, see, you, you, you know who I'm talking about if, if, if you saw him. Anyway, the plot. The plot's MacGuffin is the Red October. This is a brand new Soviet sub that has a top secret silent drive called the Caterpillar Drive. Ramius, who is highly decorated, has been given the honor of taking it on its maiden voyage. However, his intention is not to follow the set course, but to steer the sub out into the open Atlantic and the coast of the United States, which is where he and select members of his crew are going to defect. Jack Ryan is approached by the Navy, who is suspicious as to what Ramius is up to, and who are curious as to whether or not he's trying to start a war, which is something that Ramius kind of telegraphs, telegraphs to Moscow as a decoy. Because after all, this does take place in 1984. This is pre-Gorbachev. This is when the relationship between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was still hostile. And people fear that even a misperception of one side's intent could send both sides directly to war, possibly nuclear war. 
So over the course of the next week or so, Ryan tries to do his best to understand Ramius's behavior, while also convincing the Navy to not blow Red October out of the water, which is what the Soviet Union is kind of planning on doing as well. Uh, they're trying to make it seem like Ramius wants to start a war. They're simultaneously pursuing him. And Red October has a saboteur on board the entire time who is making it harder for them to finish their defection plans. There's a little bit more to the story. I kind of summed it up, but it is a tense film. And much like McTiernan's other films of this time, Die Hard, even Predator, it's really tight. And the performances, they were lauded at the time and they hold up so incredibly well. Now, the reason I wanted to talk about it on this episode was because it was released in 1990, not 1984. And that was just the Cold War was in its final phase. This has a communist wanting to defect at its core. And that was becoming more and more common in the 1980s, or at least you have more and more high-profile communists or more profile Russian or, or Eastern European citizens wanting to defect. There were a lot of things within the Soviet Union that were taking their toll on the people, and that was one of the other reasons they wanted to defect. You had the war in Afghanistan. You had other economic factors. In 1986, you would have the Chernobyl explosion Life in the Soviet Union in the 1980s was very, very tough. And you have people wanting to leave the country so that they could find a better life. And in the hunt for Red October, you have Ramius. And he is someone who has always been a loyal captain, but it's come at a price. Mainly, his wife had died a year before, but he was at sea. And this just, it, this broke him. It devastated him. And it made him realize how much he put his life into the Navy without getting much in return for it. It's the type of sentiment that works for anyone who considers America to be the good guys in the Cold War. You know, going to the U.S. will give you the freedoms that you've always wanted because you're not there. You're not going to be stuck in this cold totalitarian society that you are right now. And you know, that's not completely false. You know, there were significant advantages to living in the United States instead of the Soviet Union, especially if you had means in the 1980s. But what I like about this is McTiernan does not make this into a Chuck Norris movie. You know, this could have been like crazy jingoistic. He goes for something a little more empathetic um, or through like empathy through mutual respect. So one of the things that you get very often in a military thriller is this sentiment that when two warring armies clash, the soldiers, especially the officers, understand that the people on the other side often have the same sense of honor and duty that, you know, the people on our side do. And in the case of some of the anti-war movies and stories that, you know, we've seen throughout the century, really, since like the publication of All Quiet on the Western Front, the grunts, you know, your enlistees, your infantry, etc., they often come to realize that the foot soldiers that they're killing had lives similar to their own. Ryan's approach to Ramius is both of respect and admiration. And at first comes off as a know your enemy sort of thing, but as we go through the film, we see a lot more empathy for the Soviet commander. It's something we're not entirely used to in this genre at this point. And not only that, you've got Ryan getting to the Red October via the USS Dallas. Now, this is the sub that was in the North Atlantic that happened to intercept Ramius 
just by being in the right place at the right time. Courtney Vance plays the sonar operator, and he's he's great. He he picks everything up. He's kind of like that quirky guy, the quirky nerd guy on the on the boat, and he picks up these sounds that don't sound weird and and deciphers that there's this giant sub and and they eventually get Jack Ryan onto the sub and Mancuso who Scott Glenn's Captain Mancuso is just having none of this you know he, he this is a hostile enemy he doesn't want to go along with it but he eventually does and he eventually does get this this grudging give this grudging respect to Ramius like that they are very too very much the same man um, which is a really good dramatic beat, especially as the movie builds toward its climax. Now, of course, there's certainly some we're still better than them and they're still evil in the film. After all, Stellan Sosgard's Captain Tup- Tupolev isn't trying to capture his former mentor, but he's trying to kill him. And it's not something, at least in the world of the film, that Americans would do, you know, to their own unless they were absolutely provoked. You know, we're... You try to we try to take in that that defecting captain traitor et cetera put him on trial unless he goes for the suicide by cop angle which we've seen as well now of course the hunt for red October is an important film both in the Cold War subgenre as well as the suspense and thriller genre and one of the biggest reasons for that is because it's well written and it's well acted which it needs to be because while there are action scenes two submarines floating in the water is just not as sexy as F-14s flying across the sky. We certainly wouldn't have had all the other Jack Ryan movies in the 90s without it, but also a number of other thrillers that came along later in the decade, such as those based on John Grisham novels. With the publication of The Hunt for Red October in 1984, Clancy is credited with creating the techno-thriller genre. In a 2013 Baltimore Sun article that was published after his death, John Land, marketing chair for International Thriller Writers Group, who is also an author, said, Tom Clancy defined an era not just of thrillers, but of pop culture in general. No one encapsulated the mindset mentality of the Reagan era more as the Cold War was heating up for the last time and we were entering a new age of modern warfare. Clancy's books tapped into our fears and helped define our psyches, even as he reinvigorated the thriller genre by bringing millions of new readers into the fold. Very few writers can lay claim to creating a genre, Land added, but the techno-thriller, that all falls at the feet of Tom Clancy. He was so ahead of the curve. And the Wikipedia page for The Hunt for Red October also credits Tom Clancy as a trailblazer for popular fiction. His enormous success in both hardcover and mass market paperback helped lead to the publishing companies pushing that model as a standard for authors who would be some of the more prolific popular fiction authors of the 80s and 90s in different genres such as thriller, horror, and even romance. Now, this movie is rentable from Amazon Prime. I was actually able to watch it because it was on AMC recently. So I, I, uh, I watched it on demand through AMC. And it pops up on cable every once in a while. Although It's a movie that doesn't get as much play as it used to. In fact, in our age of multi-billion dollar franchises with exploitable IPs whose films are phonetically paced, there isn't a ton of room in theaters for a tense, slow-burn thriller that eschews spectacle for performance. If you haven't watched it in a while, you really should. It holds up incredibly well. And then there's Ruskies. 
is a Russian sailor, shipwrecked one mile from a top secret U.S. security base. They are three American boys. Just cool out, sucker. You're an American now. Officer is gone. Ship is gone. I am lost. I am here. What the hell are we gonna do with him? We could say he's my uncle. Together, they will take you on the adventure of a lifetime. Where sometimes the worst of enemies can become the best of friends. Dad, what if a Russian landed on the beach here? What would you do? Kill him. Take him, Misha, to Cuba on the American Dreamer. Are you crazy? You can't go to Cuba. You're a fine lieutenant. Will you do what you have to, and I'll do what I have to. My kids still missing. This was an entry into the 1980s kid adventure subgenre, the pantheon of which features E.T., the extraterrestrial, and the Goonies. And, you know, this subgenre is also crossover to others with, like, the never-ending story, with fantasy, uh, horror, with the 1990 It television movie. I say that Stand By Me fits in here. I mean, that's a deep coming-of-age film that transcends its subgenre, but it's still kind of at its core, like one of those types of stories. And speaking of Stand By Me, if you want to hear me talk about that movie, go check out episode 65 of Pop Culture Affidavit from about five, five years ago or so. Uh, Mike Bailey and I covered it, both the film and its soundtrack. Great, great conversation. We still remember having a lot of fun with that, and I love that movie. So, so this kid adventure subgenre, by the way, that's where we get Stranger Things and those sorts of stuff from. And Rusky's closest relatives in this list are the Goonies and E.T., as it, the movie involves three kids who discover a Soviet submarine officer in Key West, and they keep him a secret from their parents, who are very present in the film, but also deep in their own family drama. The film debuted in November of 1987, and it made $2.1 million at the box office that year, it was number 157 in the rankings, so it was a complete dud financially, although it did beat out the Garbage Pail Kids movie, so it wasn't too totally awful. But it did not go on to become a cult hit, such as The Monster Squad, which made $3.5 million at the box office, but had a second life on video and cable. And I'm a huge, I loved The Monster Squad when I was younger. I think I saw that movie like 10 times. We kept renting that movie. Uh, anyway, Rusky's, I'm sure it got plenty of replay on cable and syndicated channels, you know, because it was available. And I'm sure it got a fair number of video rentals when you had nothing else to rent. But it's just another flick in the 80s movie's graveyard that would have really been otherwise completely forgotten if it didn't star Joaquin Phoenix. Now, at that time, Joaquin Phoenix was still going by the name Leaf, and he had already been in 1986's Space Camp. This is a, another film that's not very great, but I have a weird affection for, probably because I had a crush on Leah Thompson in 1986. 
Anyway, this is his first starring role. Uh, he was a supporting cast member in Space Camp or part of an ensemble in Space Camp, but he he's the lead in this movie. And he plays 12-year-old Danny. Danny's a military brat. He lives in Key West. He spends much of his time with his friends Adam, who's played by Peter Billingsley, yes, Ralphie from A Christmas Story, and Jason, who's played by Stefan DeSalle. The film takes place over the 4th of July weekend, and we see that the kids are mostly on their own through most of it, with Jason's dad being on post at the military base, Danny's parents literally finalizing their divorce. And by the way, his mom is played by Carol King. Yes, the singer Carol King. Um, and so as the movie opens, they finalize their divorce. And so they're kind of preoccupied with the family chaos. And Adam's just really slick enough to dodge his own parents. Three boys have a clubhouse in a secluded beach spot that I think was made from an old bunker. And they have a motorboat that they tool around with when they're not, you know, riding their bikes everywhere. Adding to this is the ever-present Sergeant Slammer comics that they read, a jingoistic gung-ho military book that in addition to their parents' views has them constantly in military dress-up and virulently anti-communist. I mean, a lot of Americans were such in the 1980s, but I'm talking the type of attitude that sees every Russian as more or less an evil alien invader or something. And that's how it goes when they meet Misha. This is the Soviet submarine officer who was washed up on shore. Now, he'd been part of a three-person team that was supposed to pick up some stolen surveillance tech from an American trader, but their raft capsized in a storm. We assume, at least at the beginning of the movie, that the other two guys with him, they were KGB people, then who were in charge of the inspiration. Misha was basically the driver of the, the boat. Um, now, they were killed. We, we think they were killed, but they pop up later in the film to add to some of the drama. And, and Misha, by the way, is played by Whip Hubley, whose only other notable role, at least from what I can tell from my perspective, was this Hollywood in Top Gun. Misha washes up on shore and finds he finds the kid's clubhouse. The boys go there the next morning. They find a code book with Russian writing on it on the shoreline. And eventually they find Misha. Now, as these things are always going to go, they start by not trusting him at all, but they eventually make friends. They even take him on a shopping montage. And things escalate when those two Soviet military officers not only find the guy who is selling them the stolen tech, but they also find Misha. Plus, there's a Marine named Raimi who gets into a fight with Misha and wants revenge. Uh, there's also a love story subplot where Misha falls for Danny's sister, Diane. Diane's played by Susan Walters, an actress who has been on a number of television series uh, over the years, but I just remember her from her role as Dolores one of Jerry's girlfriends on Seinfeld. You know the episode. But the love story, by the way, in the uh, in Ruskies, totally shoehorned in. I mean, they enlist... The, the, she meets Misha because he gets hurt in that fight with Raimi. They bring him into the hospital. She's working there as a candy striper, so she stitches him up. Um, but, like, I'm watching, like, them meet and the music start playing, and I literally turned to no one and was just like... Is this a kissing book? Anyway, the two Soviet officers want to steal the surveillance device. They go to the guy who, you know, was supposed to give it to them. He's like, dude, I took that back to the base. I don't want to get in trouble if you're not going to make the, make the drop. And uh, 
so they're all ticked, but they're going to steal it right off the base. Misha begs them not to do this because this would be an act of war way more than what happened if they had actually pulled off the uh, drop they were supposed to get. They failed to do that, of course, but then they take the boys hostage and they head out to open water to rendezvous with their submarine, which is just off the coast of Cuba and coming in. Before they take off, though, Misha free, manages to free Danny and tells him to go find the police and let them know where they are because the two boys are going to get probably killed, possibly. So Danny does that, but he spots Ramey and his Marine buddies armed and headed off to confront the Russians as they've gotten wind of what's going on and they certainly want after Misha. So Danny decides to take matters into his own hands and he swipes a jetpack from a Sergeant Slammer impersonator who's been making appearances all over Key West all weekend for the 4th of July. The parents all figure out what's going on. So what we have at the climax of the movie is in open water, a standoff between like three boats. You've got the Russians on the boat holding the kids hostage, the kids' parents, you know, trying to get the kids back. And then Raimi pulls up with, um, you know, basically wanting to blow these people away. And, oh, the Russian sub shows up to retrieve the, the their, their missing officers. Well, you've got this like, Huge standoff between all of them. And then Danny interrupts the whole thing because he flies the jetpack into the middle of that confrontation. Raimi, who's, again, he's like gung-ho nut job soldier. He actually shoots Danny down. Yeah, he shoots at a 12-year-old kid. Danny, he doesn't shoot Danny. He hits the jetpack and falls into the water. And then Misha dives in. He And as he dives in, Raimi starts shooting at him and he gets shot as well. Danny surfaces and he begs his father um, and his father, um, you know, recently divorced, uh, ran into Misha at a bar earlier in the movie and has this really like expositional moment. It's a fairly well-written expositional moment of the sort of why Russians thing. And it has to do with the fact that he was a kid in Hungary when that particular uprising got put down. So there's a real like, trauma that he's associated with Soviet soldiers. And Danny's like, dad, save Misha. So this is like a big deal at the end of the movie here. And, and he does, he, he dives in, he gives them up and everybody ends up being returned to their rightful place. The right people are arrested. And at the end of the film, we see Danny and the boys in Danny's room and they're not reading Sergeant Slammer anymore. They're reading war and peace and they're not, dressed up in camo, they're wearing like polos and shorts. So it's like they've abandoned the whole military jingoistic thing. And like I said, this is part of that Russians are people too genre, but for kids. And while I can see why it didn't have the cult movie power of Monster Squad or the hit power of E.T. or The Goonies, it does work on at least a couple of levels, especially ones that relate to the Cold War and some of the themes I've looked at over the course of this miniseries. We've seen a lot of propaganda through popular culture. Much of it was geared toward being vigilant against possible invaders or infiltrators or preparing ourselves for a nuclear war. And in just about all of those, the relationship with the Soviet Union and its allies was not just adversarial, it was outright hostile. What this showed was a shift in attitude that was starting to take place in the 1980s. Russian people weren't monolithic and were a lot better than their repressive government. Even the military people had heart. And furthermore, we could all get along. 
But whereas Red Heat was just a buddy cop movie and The Hunt for Red October was part of us winning the hearts and minds battle, this was geared toward the children who were being raised in a steady diet of United States militarism. It's not like I was bloodthirsty in 1987, but I didn't exactly have a nuanced view of the world at 10 years old. So commies were the bad guys. Sergeant Slammer is a stand-in for, like, G.I. Joe, with a dash of superhero and a dash of Schwarzenegger. Rambo, really, too. And the boys dressing up like soldiers, it's right in line with what kids were doing around that age. At that time. As I watched their adventure, I couldn't help but think of myself and my friends playing army in our suburban backyards and local parks, and how at one point or another we all owned some sort of camouflage that our parents bought for us at Thunder Ride. This was a military surplus and motorcycle store in the same shopping center where we would get our Carvel. I even went as a Marine for Halloween in the fifth grade. It was my last time ever dressing up for Halloween. So in other words... I would have been very well one of these kids. Probably Peter Billingsley in the movie because he's the dorky sidekick who comes from what looks like to be the most comfortable home. He also at this point has that Ralphie Parker, oh man, expression down still and it still works. But Joaquin Phoenix carries this film. Danny's angry. And for quite a bit of the film, it's directed at Misha because he's Soviet. But it's anger because his parents are divorcing. And this is very much an 80s movie. You know, a lot of Generation X, especially the latter part of Generation X, we were still latchkey kids. And many of the parents of my generation went through what were very often messy divorces. I was fortunate enough that my parents stayed together. They're still together. They've been together for 50 years. But, you know, if that's what's going on, where you're left home alone, your parents are divorced, you're kind of raising yourself for certain points of the day, it's no wonder that so many people escaped into fantasy and adventure where we not only got to kill imaginary bad guys, but defend our country's freedoms, right? And all of that was, in effect, something to hold on to. And being 12 years old, or in my case, like I said, 10, at that time, we were still recession-free. It was really, really easy. Furthermore, it was also very easy to be welcoming to Russian people and see them as possible friends when it's becoming more and more obvious that we were going to be on the winning side of this thing. Now, kids, pop culture, and quite a bit of Main Street pop culture didn't see the listlessness of the early to mid-1990s coming. Now, I don't know. Maybe it did, and I'm wrong here. I can just attest to the fact that it seemed like the remains of the 80s stuck around until at least the beginning of 1992, and that included everything from the color palette to the action hero. Of course, by then I had aged out of kids' adventure movies, and I was starting to look for more mature stuff. And by that, I mean movies with elaborate nude scenes, which is why I saw Porky's when I was about 15 years old. But anyway, um, really, there were times when I wonder if the end of the Cold War was part of the reason that the big-budget tentpole action flicks started to morph through the decade into big-budget disaster movies. Without the Russians or a stand-in for the Russians, who are we going to fight? Aliens? Yeah, we had Independence Day to, to show that. 
And I know that the B-level vigilante movies, you know, the Seagals and Steven Seagal type movies and stuff, they st- they stuck around way past their expiration date. But, oh man, that, that's an aesthetic that goes beyond the, the scope of this show, just as the Die Hard on a Blank aesthetic does as well. You know, we were kind of, there's a lot that we threw at the wall to see what would stick in the early part of the 1990s because of the fact that we had no adversary or or allegory for the adversary to fight in these types of movies. So it's kind of the end for Cold War pop culture. I mean, not technically, I've got one more episode left. <laughs> but this short period of time, this is Reagan's second term. It ends with the dissolution of the Soviet Union. I know it's halfway through Bush's term, but you know, it was kind of on the wall as Reagan was wrapping up. It signals the close of a particular theme in our movies, television shows, comic books, novels. And Ruskies is not a landmark film by any means. But I can't get out of my head the idea that it's telling kids to put the guns down and to put the toys away because we're not going to necessarily need them. And that'll do it for at least the content of the episode. Before I go, I do have some feedback. I've got a couple of emails. The first email I have is from J. David Weeder, who is the Dave Cave over on Two True Freaks. And he says, Tom, it's odd that I haven't written to the show thus far, but here we are. First of all, thank you for tackling such a complex and extremely interesting subject in a podcast forum. This has been a standout series within a show that is already a standout. Oh, thank you very much, Dave. I'm in the same age bracket as you and Michael. She's talking about Michael Bailey here. And the threat of nuclear war was like a cloud hanging over our heads all the time. Doom, my mushroom cloud, felt inevitable. I can't imagine being a parent during the height of the Cold War and having to sue the child's valid fears. There are a couple of pop culture moments that stood out for me, one of which haunted me for many years. In the first season of Twilight Zone's 1980s revival was a segment called a Little Peace and Quiet, directed by none other than Wes Craven. In this, a suburban mom finds she can freeze and unfreeze time, which comes to a chilling twist when the Russians fire their missiles. Time is frozen, but as she walks the streets, the missiles can be seen in the air above. That segment knocked me on my butt. This was 1985, and I was eight, and it left me wondering how one would survive in a world where time has stopped and the bombs were literally hanging precariously over you. I'm pretty sure, by the way, uh, Dave, to take out of this email, I don't think I've seen that episode, but I've seen a couple of parodies of that episode. Uh, There was one especially on, it's one of the Treehouse of Horror Simpsons segments where Barton Milhouse find the stopwatch. And I believe that was also done on The Amazing World of Gumball, if I'm not mistaken. So I'm familiar with the type of story. I will have to go back and see if I can... um, if I can find that, because that 1980s Twilight Zone show, I watched that when I was a little kid, and it, it scared me sometimes, but I really, really remember liking it. Um, and I haven't seen an episode of that. There's also another one, and I don't remember the name of it, of the episode, but it's the one where, like, the guy has, like, a stock, he's like a doomsday prepper nuclear bunker guy, and there's an and and at one point he and a friend are in their bunker. He's like showing his friend the bunker and a, the bomb goes off and he's trapped inside the bunker and it's this whole like, you know, 
them getting at each other and everything um, storyline at the end they pulled away you find out that like it was an accident and like you know his, his wife and kids had been away because they got to like her mom's house because he thinks they're dead it's, it was just the kind of the spooky sort of paranoia story that that I remember really really um, really enjoying and really finding um, striking back when I first saw that when on a it was like it was a rerun when it was a rerun on cable back in the early 90s back into Dave's email Another is my dissident mom starring Annie Potts, Martin Sheen, and a very young Lucas Haas, just to tie it into one of your recommendations, about a wife who opposes her husband's dealing with nuclear weapons manufacturing. Huh. While the latter is not an apocalyptic tale, it did lay out the conflict that we as a nation were dealing with by setting it in the family dynamic. That's always a good one, too. You know, there's a lot of good family sitcoms and dramas through the 70s, 80s, and into the 90s where... The idealism of the family, there's a clash in there of what people believe, etc. It was parodied to great use on family ties throughout the 1980s, but it was also in things in things like this. Dave wraps up by saying, either way, you're doing outstanding work, and I look forward to the next installments of Fallen Walls Open Curtains, as well as Pop Culture Affidavit Proper. Best, Dave. Thanks, Dave. And I appreciate the email from you. I know you also left me a message um, for the 9-11 miniseries I did. And I really, really do appreciate hearing all these great words. I've really enjoyed putting this whole miniseries together. I'm a little sad to see it go, but I'm, I'm really I'm glad that I did the whole thing. You know, that's, that's one part of it. And I'll have a little bit more about that next episode. Next up, I have two emails from Stella, my co-host over on Required Reading with Tom and Stella, who also hosts the Batgirl to Oracle podcast uh, on uh, the Batman universe, as well as Dear Reader, a Jane Eyre podcast over on the Fire and Water Network. So she writes, her first email starts off, she's halfway through episode seven. Thank you for accompanying me on my training runs. And she has some things to share. She says, first, I'm excited for your new limited series coming out. She's trying to bait me into creating a new limited series, so let's keep going. Uh, two, I have been enjoying this series, and it's informative as well as with all your shows. Thank you. Three, I'm concerned you are turning into Shagalicious. Why did you say that name? Uh, you talked about the Bosnian exchange student and that you had a crush on her and tried to turn on your charm. Yeah, unfortunately, Stella, I don't have any charm to turn on. Another one, add to this all those crushes you've had in the 80s. We need an intervention. I'm fine, Stella. I am fine. Anyway, four, I was surprised not to hear you speak about the potential for a female bond. What are your thoughts? Um, I thought Andy and I covered that. Or maybe I didn't. I thought I did. Um, it'd be an interesting. I think I think I think Andy was making the point that like a female 007 would be a very interesting story but the character of James Bond is so much that character that I don't think it would it would work as James Bond so you could have a um you could uh, you know you, you've had some uh, Skyfall for, uh, Skyfall, for instance, had some great dynamics with uh, with female spies, and it'd be really interesting to see something spin out of that. But but no, I was kind of on the, on the line where, like, you know, James Bond, essentially, I think it's just a it's a very good um, it's a very set male character, and I think that that's one of the things that makes 
him such a good character. So keep it the solid work, your podcasting little sis, Stella. Thanks, Stella. And she wrote in again after episode eight, and she said she also began episode one of 9-11. She said, your strong statement of the power of the press got me thinking. One, why do the people at that time and in that area of the world trust the press so implicitly? It's like the people of Gotham City. <laughs> Would the revolution have worked without that? The Soviets knew prop how to do propaganda really, really well. And um, I guess they knew that mechanism and they set that mechanism up very well. So I think it was just ingrained in them to know that institution and to trust it, which is when they started creating counterbalances to that uh, as, as you get through these revolutions and stuff like that. Um, it, it works really, really well. The people who were running the revolutions, just like people like Lenin and Stalin did before they took over the media, they knew the media. And I guess that's, that's, that's something that's really, really interesting. That would be, that'd be it's, it's a whole, I mean, it's a whole course you could take, but the media influence and the influence of media and then how you use the media in various forms to counteract totalitarian uh, societies, how to push your totalitarian societies and, and how, and how it works in terms of the revolution from all the way back in, um, the 17th, uh, the, you know, the, the 18th century with the American revolution through, you know, the 19th century into the 20th and even, even to current day, you know, we see it repeated over and over and over again. So we can kind of see where the pattern with that would be, I think. So it's really good food for thought. Two, could our fake news syndrome almost be a result of what happened here as the news helped oust the corrupt leader? Possibly. You know, the fake news syndrome and all that, it, it mirrors a lot of what you would see um, in countries like that, in eras like that. Um, you know, if you're due to whole media, media studies now on both uh, tele, cable television and the internet, uh, and internet sites and, and conspiracy theories and things like that, and where people are getting their news, whether it be, uh, you know, Fox or Breitbart or whatever, I could probably, you could probably do a whole, like, let's look at, again, the pattern repeating itself, the way it mirrors something from the past, real life in the past, not just something Orwellian, like 1984, but like real life in the past and, and, and in other places and, uh, how it's just essentially people playing from the same playbook, uh, maybe using different technology or using the occasional different tactics, but because they know what is going to be effective to reach a certain audience over what's not. But I think by and large, yeah, you could, you could see that it's maybe not a result, but there's a correlation and there's certainly a, a mirror between the two. So she says, keep up the good work, Stella. So thanks uh, for the feedback. I've got one more episode to go. That will drop on December 26, 2021. So thanks for the feedback, guys. I have one more episode to go in this miniseries. It's going to drop on December 26th, 2021. So if you want to get some feedback to me about this or any other episode, please send it my way by December 21st. And that'll get it into the last episode. If it comes in after that, I will just drop it into a future pop culture affidavit episode, and I will let you know if it uh, when it would air. So what will I be looking at the next time, the last time? Well, I'm looking at the end. The Soviet Union officially ceases to be, and I'll wrap up the show by giving an in-depth look at that 
as well as some other history around that era, as well as covering my two all-time favorite Cold War films. Until then, thanks for listening, and take care. This has been an episode of Fallen Walls, Open Curtains, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. You can find show notes and other information about this miniseries and the blog Pop Culture Affidavit at popcultureaffidavit.com. You can find episodes of the show and other great shows at twotruefreaks.com. The Facebook group for this show is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. You can follow me on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. All clips used are for informational and illustrative purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you very much for listening and come back next time for the next chapter in the end of the Cold War. No